God, in these next few moments as we look into your word, God, I pray as we pray so often, Lord, that this would not simply be a religious exercise, but it would be an act of worship as we open the written word of God and we know that when we open the written word of God, we encounter the living word of God. And Lord, I pray that we would encounter your son, Jesus Christ, this morning. For those who are in this room who may not know your son, Jesus Christ, or are watching online, God, I pray this morning they would come to a place where they recognize the truth about who Jesus is and what he can do for them. And Lord, for those of us who are believers in this room, I pray that these last few weeks and today, Lord, would be an opportunity to drive us to our knees in worship and in thanksgiving for all you have done for us through your Son. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So today, obviously, is the last of our sermon series entitled Sovereign Lord. As we've looked at these, uh, these last three weeks, these last three uh, stories in Mark 4 and in 5. Um, and this morning, we are looking at the last of those four. And as we look at those, I just want to recall for us for a few moments the three things that have happened thus far. If you remember, Jesus has, uh, has been teaching and the people were pressing in. So he came out onto a boat um, and they uh, continued to teach. And then when night came, he went across. A great storm rose up. The disciples believed that they were all going to die. Jesus rose and he rebuked the wind, he spoke to the waves, and everything went calm. And if you remember the little interchange at the end, when Jesus looks at his disciples, he says, why are you still afraid? Do you still have no faith? And then Jesus uh, goes to the other side of the sea and is in, uh, encounters a man who's filled with a legion of demons. And he heals this man. And at the end of him healing this man, the scripture says that the townspeople come to see what's happening. And when they see this man seated and clothed in his right mind, they were greatly afraid and they begged Jesus to leave their region. So Jesus, of course, did not argue. He got on the boat. He went back to the other side. And when he went back to the other side, as he was going, we'll see this story in a minute, he's going to Jairus' house. He encounters a woman that we saw last week. He encounters a woman with a significant medical problem that she had had for well over a decade. And as he encounters this woman, um, she, being afraid, no doubt, as we saw last week, because of her uncleanness, uh, uh, scripturally, uh, ceremonially, and because of her uh, being an outcast in society, she no doubt would have been afraid. And so she, instead of allowing her fear as the disciples did, um, her, their fear drove out any faith that they might have. And the townspeople, their fear drove out any faith that they might have. This woman, her fear did not drive her away from Jesus, but rather her fear drove her to Jesus. And she came to Jesus and fell on her face before him after she had been healed. And it says she came to him in fear, but it was a different kind of fear. See, the others were so afraid they didn't understand Jesus. The others were so afraid they pushed Jesus away. This woman was so afraid she fell down in worship. She's the only one that responded properly. And this morning we'll see a man, we'll be introduced to a man that we saw last week just by name really. Um, but we're going to have a lot more detail about what's going on in his life. And the circumstances of this passage give us a glimpse into his heart 
and his mind and what's going on, but really give us a glimpse into the heart of Jesus and, and who he is and what he does. And we find this man in a terrible situation, even in what I would consider to be one of the worst situations that a human being could ever be in. But even if we find ourselves in the worst possible situation that a human being could face, we can know and we can have faith because our Savior is the sovereign Lord over death itself. Jesus and his disciples got into the boats again. They're met again when they get off the boat. And the scripture tells us that when they're met there, they are met by a man named Jairus. And he shows himself to be sovereign in this man's life and really in all things. And because he is sovereign, first, we should forget ourselves. We should forget ourselves. If you look with me at Mark chapter 5, as, as Brother Bill read just a moment ago, beginning in verse 21, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Now, you remember, hopefully you remember from last week, because we're going to skip over those verses, but if you remember as he was going and he was met by this woman, it says that the crowd was pressing in on him. And, and we, we saw that what that means is they were literally crushing him. Uh, there were so many people, and they were pushing so hard, and everybody just trying to get a piece of Jesus, trying to get something from him. So they are pressing and pushing inwardly. So this great crowd gathers around him, and you can imagine, in this moment, uh, we read this, it says they were, they were pressing in on him, and then in verse 22, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. Now, you, remember, to get this into your mind, what's going on? This crowd is pressing in. There are people everywhere. Um, I heard one guy say that he just got off the sea and stepped into a sea of people. And there are people everywhere. And they're pressing in on him. And you can imagine, put yourself in Jairus's shoes for a moment. Jairus is the leader of the synagogue, and he is trying to get... To Jesus, And in order to get to Jesus, he's got to do a little bit of fighting. He's got to do a little bit of pushing. He's got to do a little bit uh, to get through this crowd to try to get to Jesus. Because they are pressing in everywhere. And it says he is one of the rulers of the synagogue. This is important. It's important to understand this story. He's one of the rulers of the synagogue. This does not mean he is a priest. He is not a priest. He is not a Pharisee. He is not a, as we're told earlier in the book of Mark, he's not what's known as one of the Herodians, which was a religious sect. And he is not a scribe. He is not any of these things. He is a layman. So Jairus is a layman, but he has a very special job. Jairus's job is to take care of the synagogue, but not just to take care of it um, a little or to order services. Jairus's job was to keep track of everything. He would have organized the services. He would have, he would have done all of these things. This was his full-time occupation. And Jairus, uh, one of the things he was charged with was in the synagogue, there would have been what they call an ark in the back of the synagogue or behind the, uh, the, the lectern. And in that ark, when you open it up, that was where these very valuable handwritten, hand-copied scrolls would be. Um, and the, they were kept there under lock and key. And it was Jairus's job to make sure that they were taken care of. To make sure that they weren't stolen. To make sure that they were only touched by people who should be touching them. Like rabbis and teachers of the law. So Jairus is a very high profile, very well known, probably very high society guy within the religious society of Israel. And so Jairus is there. 
Um, and he has this. It also means something very important. This means that Jairus runs in the same crowds that hate Jesus. Jairus runs in the religious crowds. Jairus knows these people. In fact, this is probably how Jairus came to know Jesus. This is probably how he understood who Jesus was. Um, I, you don't have to turn there now, but if you were to look back at some point, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, uh, Jesus does something. He gets to Capernaum, where he is now, and he goes into the synagogue. And when he goes into the synagogue, there is a man with a withered hand. And this man with a withered hand comes up to Jesus, and it says that the Pharisees um, sat back and they watched. Uh, the Pharisees and the, um, the Herodians, they sat back and they watched to see if Jesus would heal this man on the Sabbath. Because they considered that to be a violation of God's law because he was working on the Sabbath. And, of course, Jesus, in compassion, healed this man. And then, when they tried to confront him on it, he made them look... The best theological word I can think of is stupid. He made them look stupid in front of everyone. And then it says, at the end of chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it says, And the Herodians and the Pharisees went out from that place, and from that day on, planned and plotted as to how they would destroy Jesus. They wanted him dead. So th this group, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they wanted him dead... And then in Mark 3, again in verse um, 22, it says that uh, Jesus had cast out some demons and the scribes began to tell everyone that he did that because he was demon-possessed. So now you've got the three main religious groups in this area, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the scribes, two of which wanting dead, the other one who's telling everybody that he's demon-possessed. Okay, so these are the people that Jairus runs with. Why? How, why do I say that? Well, simple. They were all in the synagogue when Jesus healed this man of the withered hand. Well, who's the ruler of the synagogue? There's only one. The ruler of the synagogue is Jairus. So Jairus is there, almost certainly. So Jairus has been there. Now, why is this so important? Well, the next phrase tells us what is going on in this man's life and in this man's heart in this moment. It says... Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. He fell at his feet, at Jesus' feet. The ruler of the synagogue lays down on the ground at the feet of a Jewish carpenter and rabbi. He lays down in the dirt. He prostrates himself. Now, the Jews do not bow to anyone except Israel's king and God himself. All you have to do is look at Daniel to realize they don't bow down to idols. They don't bow down to other kings. They bow down to Jews, uh, the Jews' rightful king, and they bow down to God himself in worship. And so Jairus knows what he's doing. But in this moment, if, if, you, if you can think about it, I think in this moment when Jairus runs up to Jesus and falls down on the ground, Jairus is not falling down on the ground as the ruler of the synagogue. Jairus is not falling down on the ground as a man who has a lot of great uh, influential ties in the community. He's not falling down on the ground as a prosperous and well-known religious leader. Jairus is falling on the ground as a father whose daughter is dying. That's what he is. So he runs to Jesus. And why, why is that important? Well, simply put, because the urgency of Jairus' need outweighs... The cultural pressures around him. 
The urgency of what Jairus needs outweighs anything. And, and, and to be honest, at this moment, if the Pharisees and the Herodians want him dead, if the scribes are telling everyone uh, that Jesus is demon-possessed, then Jairus coming and fraternizing with Jesus and falling down at his feet and doing all of these things. You know what Jairus just did? Jairus just took his entire livelihood and his entire future and he threw it out the window. Because in that moment, they most certainly would have gone to Jairus and said, uh... We don't want you leading the synagogue anymore. He was taking everything, just like the woman with the issue of blood, everything that he had essentially, and he was putting it on the line. Why? Because what they thought didn't matter. All he knew is one thing and one thing only. My little girl is dying, and I'm going to do anything and everything I can in my power to make it stop. If you're a parent or you have children in your life that you're extremely close to, this feeling is certainly not foreign to you. I would run through a brick wall. To save my children. And this man is doing no different. But then he says something amazing. It says, and he implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. We're going to find out later that his little daughter is 12 years old. Now, without belaboring this too much, in their culture, that's old enough for her to be betrothed in marriage. But this is not a father coming and saying, my daughter who is of age is having a medical issue. What does he do? This is a dad falling down on his face in front of Jesus and saying, my little baby girl. That's who this is. He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. And this next phrase is extremely important. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. This is not a statement of, of, of hope. This is not a statement of, uh, of, of circumstance. This is not a statement of playing the odds. It's a statement of certainty. Jairus says, come, lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. He is not saying, Jesus, I want you to come and maybe we can see if we can work something out. He says, Jesus, I know if you will come and you will lay your hands on her, she will live. This isn't a statement of a religious leader in the Jewish culture who just thinks Jesus might be able to help him out of a jam. This is a statement of faith. This is a statement of faith. We also know in a minute because Jesus affirms it. But this is a statement of faith. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be weighed well and live and he went with him Jesus or Jairus rather believed that Jesus could do fully what everyone said he could do most likely Jairus had heard his teachings most certainly he had at the very least heard of Jesus's healings and all the amazing things that had been done but just remember in the last two days or in the last couple of days um, Jesus has already Jesus has already calmed a storm on the sea. Jesus has already cast out demons from a man with a legion of demons. He literally is about to heal a woman um, who has had a medical issue for over a decade. Jairus looks at Jesus and he believes. Jairus came to Jesus in terrible circumstances. In the kind I don't want to even try to fathom. He came to him when everyone, knew, when everyone he knew would have discouraged him from doing so. They would have said it was bad. They would have said it was wrong. They would have said it was a betrayal to God himself. But he came to Jesus. And he came to Jesus the right way. He came to Jesus and he fell down. He came to Jesus on his face. 
And he came to Jesus taking his entire life and setting it aside in faith. See, often you and I, we try to come to Jesus. And when we try to come to Jesus, believer and non-believer, we try to come to Jesus and we try to come to him. And we want to say, I want all of the benefits that Jesus offers, but I also want to carry with me all these things that I like as well. See, Jairus certainly wanted the benefits that Jesus could offer. But in order for Jairus to get it, he had to take everything in his life and set it aside. Everything. See, when he came, he came humbly, he came broken, and he came bringing nothing but a request. And see, when you and I come to Jesus Christ, we don't come to him with anything. We bring nothing to the table except ourselves and a simple request. Just like Jairus, save me, Lord. Fix this. When we come to him, we come before him acknowledging just like in all four of these instances, that he is the king and he deserves our worship, our humility, our submissiveness, and our brokenness. See, when you look at these passages, what you find is something interesting. When Jesus calmed the storms, the, the disciples didn't bow down. The disciples did not bow down in humility and submissiveness, but the waves and the wind did. The winds and the waves bowed to Jesus' word. And then whenever he crossed over the demon-possessed man, the demons bowed in Jesus' presence. Then at the end, after the man was healed, it says that the man bowed in Jesus' presence. And then when this woman was healed by Jesus and Jesus called her out of the crowd, she came and she fell down at his feet in worship. And then Jairus comes and falls down at his feet. You get the pattern here? Everyone is falling at the feet of the king. He is the sovereign lord of creation, he is the sovereign Lord of the spiritual world. He's the sovereign Lord of the physical world. And now we will see that he is, in fact, sovereign Lord even over death itself. And because he is sovereign, we should trust Christ and not worldly wisdom. Not worldly wisdom. Look at verse 35. While he was still speaking, speaking to whom? To, to the woman uh, that, that we saw last week. So he's speaking to this woman. While he was still speaking... There came from the ruler's house some who said. Now, just by way of uh, uh, explanation really quickly, again, put yourself in Jairus' shoes. He has fought his way to Jesus. He has gotten him. He's fallen. He's putting everything aside. And he's fallen down on his face in front of Jesus. And when he does this, um, he begs him, he implores him, please come and I know you will heal my daughter. So Jesus goes with him. But it says, while he was going, a woman in the crowd reached up and touched the hem of his garment. And Jesus stopped and turned around, looked for her, talked with her, did all of these things. It must have taken a little bit of time, as we'll see in a minute. But what is Jairus doing in this moment? Jairus needs to get Jesus to his house. That's what he's thinking. I've got to get him to my daughter. But Jesus stops and takes time with this woman. And he's sitting there in the crowd. And then it says here, and while he was still speaking. Now, as a father with children, if you think about this moment where, where he desperately wants his daughter to be taken care of. And it says that Jesus stops and he's just talking with this woman who's laying in the dirt. Jesus, come on. Let's go. We got to get to my house. And then think about this. See, there's this moment of tension in the story where, Jesus, where Jairus falls down and says, please, if you'll come, I know she'll be made well and live. But it goes from a moment of tension, which is usually how stories work, to a moment of absolute despair. 
Because in this moment, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? This statement right here reveals possibly what Jairus thought, but certainly what his servants thought. Many of them had no doubt heard about Jesus and what he had done. And so because of this, they knew that Jesus could heal. He healed a man with a withered hand. He, he did all of these things. So they knew that Jesus could heal. But in their mind, it's possible that this rabbi who had come from God could heal someone who was sick, could heal someone who was diseased, could heal someone who was lame or mute or blind. He could do all of those things. He could open the deaf's ears. He could do any of those things. But when it came to the moment where someone died, it was over. See, there were many things that Jesus could heal, but in their mind, they figured death was not one of those because death comes for everybody. And death is not something that you can just fix. And so they tell Jairus, hey, don't bother Jesus anymore. She died. She's dead. In verse 36, it says, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. It's in the present tense. The Greek phrase, it says, quit you fearing, keep you believing. Right? That's what he says. Quit fearing, keep believing. And what, what is Jesus? Well, right now, Jesus just affirmed that what Jairus was doing was not just coming to get something for Jesus from Jesus. Jairus was coming in faith because he tells Jairus, no, 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 no. Don't be afraid. Keep having faith. Right? Do you notice that's the same thing that's happened in every single one of these? The disciples were afraid and had no faith. The townspeople were afraid and had no faith. The woman was afraid, but she had faith. And Jesus is telling Jairus, I know you could be afraid, but right now have faith. He's showing us that the presence of fear, as in fear of the unknown, fear of what might happen, fear of things being out of control, Jesus is telling us that kind of fear doesn't belong to those who have Jesus Christ. Right now, people will say, oh, look at our world. Everything's falling apart. I just don't know what to do. Quit fearing and keep believing. But it's, but it's keep fearing, or quit fearing and keep believing. So he says, keep believing. In verse 37, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. So Jesus says, hey, 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 calm down, calm down. Quit being afraid and just keep believing like you have been. That's what I want you to do. And then they just go. But I love this. Even in this moment where it seems for Jairus, everything in his life is falling apart. Everything is out of control. There are people clamoring everywhere. And even in the midst of that clamoring, he's talking to this woman. Do you notice in the midst of this, Jesus is extremely calm and that's another picture we're supposed to see in all four of these in the midst of chaos Jesus remains calm when the storm is raging Jesus is asleep in the boat when no one else can hold this demon possessed man down Jesus just looks at him and talks normally and says go when this woman who is in complete despair and in need he doesn't even have to say anything she touches his garment and she is healed and then he turns and he calls her daughter. 
<laughs> in the midst of this crowd that's going crazy, Jesus is speaking to this woman gently and tenderly. And then in this moment, when Jairus' life is falling apart and his servants are there telling him, your daughter is dead, Jesus is calm. And it just says, he's so calm, in fact, that he stops and he looks at the rest of his disciples and he says, um, Peter, James, John, y'all come with me. The rest of you stay here. And he leaves them out. Why? Because he's in complete control. There could be other reasons as to why Jesus does this. We know that he pulled these three in on numerous occasions. But the truth is, in this moment, he's not worried. He's not afraid. He's not scared. He's not unsure. He's not any of those things. He is in complete and utter control. So it says he gets those three, leaves the rest of them behind. And in verse 38, it says, And when he got to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. Very quickly, this is a description of a Jewish funeral procession, or at least the beginning of one. And they had what they called professional mourners. These were people who were paid to show up at a funeral and scream and wail and cry at the top of their lungs. Now what I want you to get the picture of here is it doesn't just say they were crying and weeping. It says there was a commotion. Twice it says. There was a, it says there's a commotion and it says Jesus asked them why is there such a commotion. Because they're wailing and they're weeping and they're crying and they're screaming and they're rending their garments and all of these things. And then there is also in these times there would be musicians playing. But what they would do is they would have multiple musicians and they would have them all play different songs at the same time. So when you walk in a room, it is just this cacophony of noise. People screaming and yelling and music playing at all different ways and at all different times. And so Jesus refers to it as a commotion. And he says, uh, why are you making a commotion and weeping? In verse 39, the child is not dead, but sleeping. Now how do I know that these were paid mourners? Because of the next phrase. And they laughed at him. If they were really upset about this woman or this, this young girl dying, you don't flip from weeping and wailing and screaming to laughing. It's, that's not the way it works. You might think he's crazy, but you don't turn around and laugh. Well, why? Because they're not actually upset. This is just what they do for a living. And so in this moment, they are laughing at Jesus. Why? Because Jesus just said, she, why are you making all this commotion? She's not dead. She's merely asleep. Now, these people in that moment are laughing because they're thinking, hey, we do this for a living. We've been around plenty of dead bodies. We know when someone is dead and when someone is not. And they think, you're crazy. She's not asleep. She's obviously dead. Well, is this Jesus not fully understanding the process of death? Is this Jesus not really grasping social cues to understand what's going on in this moment? Or is this Jesus, the sovereign Lord over creation, the sovereign Lord over the spiritual world, the sovereign Lord over the physical world, and now sovereign Lord over death itself coming into the room and saying, she may be dead to the rest of y'all, but as far as I'm concerned, she might as well be asleep. Because that's what it is. See, Jesus in this moment is not misunderstanding Death, he is redefining death. And see, this world and even our own selves will try sometimes to convince us that God's truth and God's word are ignorance. The world will try to give you all kinds of convincing 
arguments and quote-unquote wisdom about a great many things that you might experience in this life and tell you that what you believe is outdated or uncaring or unloving. However, in your faith journey with Jesus Christ, you need and I need to trust Christ and listen to the word of God and not worldly wisdom. See, in this moment, these people thought they knew what they were talking about. The servants thought they knew what they were talking about. These people who were weeping and wailing thought they knew what they were talking about. It seems like these three disciples are just along for the ride, like always. Right? And, we, and the mom and dad are just, as any would be, in complete despair. Their little girl is over here in the corner, dead. And now in this moment, they're maybe a little confused. Because Jesus says, she's not dead, she's just asleep. Every single aspect of it would point to the fact that this rabbi from Nazareth is crazy. Except he is not simply a rabbi from Nazareth. He is the sovereign Lord of all things. And in the midst of these competing voices um, in this world, we listen to and trust the sovereign Lord And lastly, what we see in this passage is that because he is sovereign, we should understand his sovereign purpose. And he said to them in verse 40, But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. It says in Luke that he didn't just put them outside. Basically, the Greek phrase in Luke says that he looked at them and said, Get out. Like firmly, harshly, get out. Why? Well, was it because Jesus' feelings were hurt because they were laughing at him? No, it's because Jesus didn't have time for them because they didn't believe in him and they didn't believe in what he was doing, so he said, get out. And the only people that were allowed to be in there were the three disciples that came with him, the mom and the dad, and the little girl in this room. But it's so important because it says, he put them all outside and he took the child's father and mother. And this is a moment where there's a little bit of a shift. He took the child's father and mother. Literally, the word is gathered. He gathered them, like gently saying, all right, come on, let's go in here. And he shuts the door. So he's harsh to the people that he tells to get out, but he's gentle to the mother and the father. And he says, come inside. And he went in where the child was. And then these next few words are some of the most shocking in this passage. Taking her by the hand. Taking her by the hand. This is a rabbi touching a dead body. That is a major, major no-no. He just touched a dead body. But, you know, um, he was also just touched by a woman who had uh, an issue of blood for 12 years. And what we found was that when unclean touches anything else, it makes it unclean. But when unclean touches Jesus, Jesus just makes it clean. And see, when other rabbis would touch something that was dead, they would have the stain of death on them. But when the Lord of life touches something that's dead, it doesn't get the stain of death on him. It puts the breath of life in that. So Jesus goes and he takes her by the hand and then he says something. And Mark is the only one that gives us the Aramaic phrase. I told Brother Bill I was happy to bless him this week by giving him Aramaic in the passage. Talitha kumi, which translated, we're told, it means, um, little girl, I say to you, arise. The word talitha is more than just little girl. The word talitha literally can be translated little lamb. Little lamb. 
like the way a father would speak to a small child when they're wait. What is the picture here? Well, he tells the other people, get out. He shuts the door, basically. And then he has the father and the mother, and he gathers and says, come over here with me. He walks over to the little girl. He takes her by the hand. And it's like a, a mother or a father waking their child in the morning. They lean down and say, hey, little lamb, get up. What does he do? He's just waking her from sleep. Why? Because for everybody else, death is just death. But for Jesus, death is just temporary. It's temporary. And it says, she got up and she began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately, there's, there's his favorite word again. Um, immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Well, of course they were. Why? Not because Jesus didn't understand. They know she was dead. Jesus was not saying she's not dead in the sense that she's not I, I don't think her heart stopped beating yet. What Jesus is saying is, as far as I'm concerned, death means nothing. So they're amazed when they see her get up. And the, the word means when she got up and walked around, it doesn't just mean a little. It means she was literally walking all over the place. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Why would he tell her to give him something to eat? Well, one, it's probably pretty practical. But two, it proves to them that they're not seeing some sort of strange magic trick or apparition. She eats food. She's real. She's alive. But this little phrase here is so important. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. Why did he put the whole crowd out and only let those three disciples and the mother and father in the room? It's because you can see all throughout Jesus' ministry. Jesus does not want people following him for the amazing signs and wonders that he can do. He does them, but it always says because he had compassion on people. He does that because he has compassion. It's just who he is. But he wants people to listen to his teaching. But he also has a purpose. He has a purpose. His purpose is to go to the cross and die and pay the price for your sin and for my sin. And several times when he does amazing things, it says that the people try to take him and make him a king. And he knows that he cannot be stopped. He has a purpose. He has a divine purpose that he has been sent to achieve. And so he strictly charged them that no one should know this. Because... He cannot be kept from the cross. Why can he not be kept from the cross? See, this gives us a little glimpse. This gives us a little glimpse because Jesus said, um, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own free will. And then he says, and when it is time, I will take it up again on my own. Now, the scripture does say that the spirit raised Jesus from the dead. It also says that the father raised Jesus from the dead. But Jesus himself said, I raise myself from the dead. So what Jesus is giving us a little glimpse into is even at this point, death holds nothing over Jesus. Death holds no power. And tell, let, me, let me tell you, the greatest fear that any human being might ever have in this life is death. It seems final. It seems overwhelming. But when you know that the Lord of all creation, Jesus Christ himself, death holds no power over him. Because he is the maker of life. Believer, this should drive us it should drive us to a place of worship. It should drive us to a place of overwhelming thanksgiving and knowing that King Jesus, our sovereign Lord, is sovereign even over death itself. And hear me. If death holds no power over our sovereign Lord Jesus Christ, this is the greatest truth you'll ever know. 
1 Thessalonians 4 and about a thousand other passages in the New Testament. If death holds no power over the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ, then death holds no power over those who are his. There is no fear. There is no storm. There is no darkness. There is no pain. And there is no finality that you and I should fear. Jesus' message to us is the same message that he had to Jairus. Quit fearing. Keep believing. In this life you can trust and worship because the one who is the sovereign Lord, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he is your Lord and he is sovereign over even death itself. The other thing we see very clearly from this passage is simple. Jesus can make the dead come to life. And there is, this morning, I am certain, there are people in this room, people watching online, you are stuck in the depth of your sin. You believe that you are so far from God, there is nothing that could be done to make you right with him. Let me tell you, this little girl was about as far from life as she possibly could be. And all it took was Jesus speaking to her and she was made new. This morning there is no sin, there is no distance that you can run that Jesus cannot reach you. There is no thing... That you could do. Why? Because in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul tells us that you in your sin and I, and when I was in my sin only, we were spiritually dead. But in Christ, he died, he rose from the grave so that you and I, when we are spiritually dead, he can give us life. And if you're here this morning, you say... But I'm so far from God. I'm so broken. I'm so whatever. Know this. You are never so something that Jesus can do nothing. He will come to you. He will make you new. But you have to come to him the way Jairus did. You have to come to him the way the woman did. You have to come to him the way that the man who was healed from a legion of demons did. You have to obey him the way the winds and the seas did. See, because, because he is sovereign Lord over the created world, and he is sovereign Lord over the spiritual world, and he is sovereign Lord over the spiritual world, I mean, I'm over the physical world, and he is sovereign Lord over death itself, then that means that he is the sovereign Lord over everything. And you have to come to him and say, and acknowledge, I want you to be my Lord. I want to bow at your feet, submit myself to you, and say, no matter what I've done, forgive me and save me. And you come like Jairus did and say, Jesus, I'm coming to you, and I know you can. I know you can heal me. I know you can forgive me. He is standing with his arms open wide even this morning. Will you come to him? Will you bow before the sovereign Lord of the universe? Heavenly Father.